You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, NSLT is about all the national security news that is hitting the national and international press, and it's all been eclipsed by the Jan 6 hearings and mass shootings. So I thought it was important to talk about this stuff because I think in the long term, it's going to be a much bigger deal. So joining me today is my pal, Joe Moreno, a national security attorney and a friend for over a decade now. I call him a Gulf War, but it's really an Iraq War vet, right? You're dating me, but I'm not that old. <laughs> and uh, dad of many, just think uh, Sound of Music, Von Trapp family. What can I say? Hey, how you doing? Elisa, great to be with you. It's an honor to join the podcast. I'm a big fan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. I'm just hoping one of the many doesn't interrupt, but you know, I fear that sometimes they just can't help themselves. But uh, let me tell you what I think was one of the biggest stories of the week that got lost. Kathy Warden, who is Northrop Grumman's CEO, and she's sort of the spokesperson, if you will, for the Defense Industrial Base or the DIB, which is really those five big companies that have the capacity and the expertise to develop high-performance weapons and hardware. You know, these are the can-do companies that have sustained us in our military defense apparatus now for decades. She called on Western governments to, and this is a quote, provide a clear signal if the defense industry is going to be needed to provide weapons for a prolonged war in Ukraine. And she didn't stop there. She went on to say, I wouldn't necessarily say I've heard we're running out, but if you do project forward that we're going to want to sustain the levels of commitments for another couple of years, that's certainly not what anyone had built stockpiles to accommodate. So what did you think about this? What are the legal issues here? Well, Elisa, you're, you're absolutely correct. And first off, and just in, in terms of your lead in, I think there are so many stories that are sort of grabbing the headlines, but are much more short term in nature. And it's, it's so good to be touching on some of the less glamorous, but probably in the long run, more meaningful issues. And this is one of them. The Ukraine conflict is already going on for, I think, a lot longer than, than at least many Americans expected it to be. And there's no end in sight. It's not as though we are providing an immaterial amount of weaponry here that's just kind of sitting on the shelf and you can take off and hand over. So I understand the concerns about having a projected sense of what will be needed and how many of them and for how long. And so I understand the concern there. I'm saying this in terms of not in my capacity as in-house counsel at, at SAP or as a, an army reservist, but just my own kind of humble opinion that Congress did its job, right? I mean, Congress passed the Ukraine Democracy Lend-Lease Act. They've set aside $36 million. More than half of that is for weaponry for Ukraine. The White House hasn't been super clear, though, in terms of its plan for what weaponry will be provided and how quickly. And, and right now, the need seems to be for artillery. And yet it seems like they're kind of slow walking it a little bit. So fully understanding the importance of what the White House is doing in terms of keeping us out of a hot war. And in that respect, they, they are doing a good job. I totally understand the defense sector's concerns about getting a clearer signal in terms of what kind of weaponry and equipment will be needed. Yeah, I, I think this woman is a force to be reckoned with. I think she should be listened to. And let me, I've always said that I think our greatest national security threat is our short-term thinking. The rest of the world thinks in terms of 50-year plans, 
you know, when Putin got up in front of the Munich Security Council, he was talking about things that had happened, you know, centuries ago that were still relevant to him. I think it's interesting that a lot of the sort of popular belief has been that he's going to stop at taking the Donbass when, you know, today Moldova's prime minister outwardly expressed concerns that he was going to enter Moldova. I think when we talked to former Moscow station chief Rob Dannenberg, you know, several months ago for the second time, you know, he wondered aloud whether he would take this godforsaken place known as Transnistria and then move on to Moldova. So, you know, certainly that was on his mind. But let me just say something that's going on on the Russian side of things. So I just add this here. The Russian Navy has taken delivery, apparently, of a submarine, which they have named already. It's called the Belgorod. And it is the longest, largest submarine in history and apparently has nuclear capacity, surveillance capacity, and it's a thing to behold. I mean, it's not the battleship Potemkin. (laughs) This is obviously a menace and a threat. And he's showing his capacity and his speeches are signaling that he's looking back at the so-called golden days of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, which did not encompass simply Donbass. But it was also a reminder to me, Joe, I wonder what you think about this. It kind of reminded me of some of the things that Antonin Scalia wrote. I'm not saying that I'm a huge Antonin Scalia fan, but, you know, occasionally he would drop these sort of vital truths. And one of the things that he did in general dynamics versus United States, which was a Supreme Court case back in 2011, is he talked quite a bit about the girth and the size and the importance and the capacity of these dib companies, including the one headed by this woman. So I just wanted to tell our listeners, especially the young ones, that one of the more important discussions of the state secrets privilege can be found in that opinion. And if you're thinking about potentially practicing in the Court of Federal Claims, which is not the worst place to start. Maybe you want a clerkship there. I hope you've read this and read it carefully. But just as a quick reminder, that was a situation where the Navy had placed an order for a strategic aircraft. And by the way, background for saying all this is these things, these advanced things take time. And there are a lot of secrets involved. And this is delicate stuff. And, you know, the government doesn't pass over to a manufacturer or dib company everything that it knows and say, build the thing. It doesn't really work like that because there are privileges, there are secret things. But what happened in that situation was General Dynamics was supposed to be building an aircraft, a stealth aircraft. You know, I forget which iteration it was, but nevertheless, they fell behind and they fell behind, they said, because the Defense Department and the various services would not share certain surveillance technology, stealth technology to be specific, and that the government held superior knowledge and difficult to discover information that was vital to their contractual performance. You know, that's not a good thing, but I think that case is instructive. It provides a forward lesson for young lawyers about, you know, potential contracts disputes, these huge issues long term. And all of this falls under the sort of general topic of national security law. So can you talk a little bit about your reaction to that case, Joe? Well, I mean, I I can tell you first off that I am a big Justice Scalia fan, which might not be a a surprise to you, Elisa. Um, I mean, look, he basically said the government can't have it both ways, right? I mean, the government can't reject a defense contractor's defense on the basis of state secrets, but then also come down hard on them in terms of terminating a contract. So he said, okay, if if because there are serious national security, you know, classified weaponry facts at issue and that they can't come to 
you know, discovery or come to public view at trial and litigation, then the government can't exercise a hammer on the defense contractor and, and use that as sort of a shield as well. And that, and that the idea was to restore the parties to where they were as the most fair resolution. And you're right, though. I mean, it, it does go to the fact that you're talking about lots of money, lots of time, and extremely complicated contracts that go on for years and years, that subject matter of which are some of the most sensitive weaponry and topics that we have. So 34 uh, years, wasn't it? I mean, it was like 34 it, yes, years this dispute this like, had been going on. Like the late 80s, I think it was, <laughs> right. uh, it was when, it, when it started. So pretty amazing, right? The time of big hair, you know? Yeah, uh, it was a very interesting thing. He talked a lot about the government's authority, sort of absolute authority, really, under Article 2 to invoke state secrets. But he mentioned, and I think importantly, how few of these companies there are that have the capacity to build these things and how at the end of the day, everybody sort of needs to work out their differences And I think what it really comes back to, we've gone through this sort of peregrination through state secrets, short-term thinking versus long-term thinking, the menace that is Russia and Putin. And we come back to the fact that this woman, Kathy Warden, pipes up and says, hey, we need to know if this is going to be a prolonged war, which is beltway speak for gear up. We're going to need a lot of money, a lot of contracts. You're going to have to engage with all of us and you need to do some planning. And oh, by the way, every time I look at my phone, I get an alert saying, another country has joined NATO. And generally that becomes a sharing arrangement with some military presence in each of these countries. How are you gonna protect those bases? How are you gonna do this thing? So I, I hope everybody's listening in the executive branch and in the Hill and thinking about this, You know, Armed Services Committee, Intelligence Committee, all the committees responsible for very serious aspects of our national defense. So do you think Putin's stopping at Donbass? <laughs> No, I mean, (laughs) unfortunately not. And and we've had so much warning about what this man is capable of that we may be might be shocking, but it's not surprising, you know, what what he's doing. And remember, Ukraine, you know, back in 1990, they really kind of led the way among the former Soviet republics in terms of seeking independence. Their deal for returning hundreds, thousands even of of nuclear weapons back to, to Russia was that Russia would respect their territorial sovereignty. And Russia signed an agreement to this effect with Ukraine in the 1990s. And, and Russia now in the last 20 years has repeatedly violated it, first with the Crimea and now with all of Ukraine. So I have no reason to think that President Putin will stop and we should stop being surprised at what he's capable of and be, and be prepared for what's coming next. I think that's probably right. It's it's sort of grim. It would be awesome if we could just take those resources and use them for other things, but I'm not sure that's realistic given circumstances. So I, you know, I wanted to mention to you a couple stories that I flagged about China, which, you know, maybe I should call them, is China behaving well and pretending not to? The first is that, you know, I, I noticed that it appears that China's Belt and Road spending in Russia has dropped to zero. So they may be meeting with Putin, shaking hands, and she saying, oh, you know, you're my best friend. I think at the end of the day, they've pulled back. I'm not sure their money's on Russia, but they claim to continue to buy tons of Russian oil and liquid natural gas. I mean, it sounds a little bit like they're sort of saying to us, you're not the boss of me, and then going and cleaning their room. Yeah, well, there's certainly some bravado here, right, of, of wanting to toe the line perhaps not be subject to sanctions, but don't appear that they're cowering to the U.S. 
Elisa, you said something earlier that I think is very poignant, which is that we here tend to think of many issues, including national security, in sort of very short increments, either the next midterm or the next presidential election. And Russia, and, and more importantly, China, I mean, they think in the long term, and they have a, the longest game out there. At some point in 2049, so a little more than 20 years from now, uh, the Chinese Communist Party will celebrate 100 years of running China. They have stated that their goal at that point is to be the global military superpower. They've already pursued economics. That is their goal. I suspect that they will not stop. So while we may be thrown off by short-term headlines about what China is doing right now, make no mistake that their goal is to surpass the U.S. militarily uh, within the next 20 years. And they're on track to do it, frankly. Sorry, I was trying to pay attention, but I have a short term issue where I always have to look at my phone and I saw that there was a funny tweet. There was a meme on there. So I lost what you were saying. (laughs) Kidding. It could happen. It could happen. So they they apparently China gets 15 percent of its oil. We're talking about a country of a billion people and 8 percent of its LNG. So I think they may be able to do some scaling back. Um, I'm wondering what they're thinking about today when they've given temperature warnings and Shanghai is apparently 104 between 104 and 114, depending on where you are. So the other thing that they've done, if they've started or they claim they're starting to bring some of their companies into compliance with U.S. law and even allowing some of the requested audits, I think these are about 260 Chinese companies who are saying they're going to do this. For example, just for our listeners, Yum China, which you might think of as United States Kentucky Fried Chicken, that's traded or listed on the U.S. stock exchange, just like Alibaba and Weibo, which is China's answer to Facebook. These companies claim that they're going to disclose or be transparent about their data collection practices and their books. I don't know. Are they? Yeah, don't bet on it. I mean, you know, look at <laughs> it, it makes sense. Look, I mean, I, when I think of the what China is doing differently from what the old Soviet Union's way of thinking and system was, you know, decades ago, is they already focused on on economics, and so they're going to play the game to a certain degree, right? They 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 want these companies listed in the New York or other U.S. exchanges. They realize that at some point they'll have to comply with you know state data protection laws and and SEC disclosure laws and audit requirements and things like that. I fully expect that they will talk the talk, but when it really comes down to it, I mean, you know, we've been warned by multiple administrations that China is extremely aggressive. They, their rating of U.S. intellectual property has gone for, for years. The relationship the government has with industry is not something that we in the U.S. can easily replicate because we don't operate that way. We can bolster our our partnerships between the private and public sectors. We can improve our cybersecurity and other defenses, but it's going to be very difficult to replicate the partnership that the Chinese government and military and intelligence services have with some of these companies and how they operate. And so do I, I think that they might say that they will comply with certain data collection and other financial obligations, but their track record is terrible. And so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't trust it at all. Yeah. And they do have that thing called the Chinese cybersecurity law, which is allows basically the Chinese Communist Party government to access data of essentially any company, including United States companies operating there. You know, it's interesting because Elon Musk actually believes that they won't take his technology and replicate it. I find that interesting. So I want to shift, though, back for just a second. Um, 
Yandex. So we're talking, we're going to switch a little bit and talk about sort of, we've mentioned data in these countries sort of collecting data and their particular interest in the data of US persons. But Yandex is, you know, a Russian developed software. It's in gaming. It's sort of Russia's Google, I guess is how I would describe it. And it's been harvesting a lot of millions of users, actually. And it's been returning all that data that it's harvesting from users to servers back in Russia. It is also a U.S. company traded on the New York Stock Exchange, not different from Yum China, Alibaba, Weibo. It's kind of an interesting thing. So why don't you talk a little bit about what has happened to Yandex and the head of Yandex? So, you know, my understanding from reporting is that he's he's been subject to, uh, well, Tigran Kudaverdian, butchering that, I have no doubt, but the leader of Yandex, my understanding is his hit by sanctions in the European Union due to his ties to the Kremlin, may or may not still be operating in that position. But, you know, look, this is the kind of thing, I mean, there's a reason that my kids don't have TikTok on their phones, right? I mean, the, the ability of these apps to collect facial recognition and keystroke information and geolocation information is, is massive. The, the technology that we wouldn't have even thought about just maybe even 10 years ago about what these apps can, can harvest. So privacy is a serious concern. And anyone who is using an app like these ones should be extremely cognizant uh, of where this information is going. They're claiming, you know, they claim in Russia that, you know, YouTube is harvesting all this data. And so they have an answer to that. They're now calling it RuTube. So they've got this company that's trying to get into that game. I understand it's getting more and more hits every day. So it's becoming more popular in Russia as they sort of, you know, expand into this nationalism frame of mind. You know, I think this also gets back to the issue of so Tigran, whatever, Tigran K is clearly subject to sanctions. And there are many companies right now who are subject to sanctions because of their relationships with Putin. In addition to sanctions, there are other national security tools that I think are available to the United States. But one of them that I think is difficult to use is sort of our full disclosure beneficial ownership rules, which come out of FinCEN and are really issued by the Treasury. And so there's this entity called the FATF or the Financial Action Task Force, which issues guidance usually sector specific guidance that kind of warns particular sectors, hey, you know, you are ripe for criminal investment, meaning violations of sanctions, drug money laundering, and the like. And over the last several years, both FinCEN, other like entities that are operating in different countries have issued these warnings saying to people, look, real estate is a ripe sector. And you need to understand that a lot of people love to pour money into real estate as a money laundering mechanism to hide the money, their their filthy lucre, which they have acquired from things like sanctions violations and other illegal activities. And so they've now issued one again today. FATF has issued another guidance thing saying, look, real estate is and this is a quote, a popular choice for criminals who use real estate in their illicit activities to launder their criminal profits. And it's coming as it does shortly after these really tight sanctions on the oligarchs who had purchased up, let's face it, in London, a lot of Knightsbridge and South Kensington and, you know, sort of the better neighborhoods and the athletic teams and had sort of tried to infect the financial system. And frankly, they've done the same thing here. There are a lot of these people, including, you know, Peter Avon, all those oligarchs who have purchased property in the United States as well. So I find it interesting that this was issued today. And in the wake of the disappearance of this Yandex leader, I don't know what his title is exactly. CEO. Do you know, Joe? Uh, CEO or president. But um, no, I mean, look, and a lot of these 
beneficial ownership rules with respect to real estate were supposed to be temporary, right? But but they've gone on along because they've, they've proven a, a valuable tool in terms of identifying people behind these shell companies that are purchasing real estate. So that's, and we've known for a while, us New Yorkers, why one of the reasons real estate is so expensive in New York City is because of so much foreign ownership of it. So yeah, no, it's, it's another valuable tool in terms of trying to identify the use of uh, you know, proceeds of, of criminal activity. I expect that to continue to grow to different hot markets like Miami and Los Angeles and Las Vegas. And uh, I think we'll keep seeing those those rules in place. Yeah. And Monte Carlo and whatever the heck else. So uh, just for our young listeners, I think, you know, it's important for you to look over Executive Order 13224. I think it's it's worth your time to read it. The IEPA, our International Economic Emergency Powers Act, is something that is memorialized in a variety of places, but really emanates from sort of this original EO. You might want to also take a look at 18 U.S.C. 1601, and I'll hyperlink a lot of these for you. I'm saying 18 U.S.C. I think it's really 10 U.S.C., but I think it's something that you should read over. You should better understand what the powers of the president are in this area because they're highly expansive. What an international economic emergency is, is not defined. It just has to come from outside of the country. And in the case of any of these oligarchs, it very clearly does. So I think that's it today, Joe. Did you have any little trivias, any extra little national security tidbits you wanted to add? No, you know, I think, you know, again, you have the long view, right? I mean, don't, don't get caught up in sort of a headline of the day when we think national security, you know, sometimes some of the issues that come up are not really they might be dramatic and they might be titillating in terms of in, in, in the moment, but definitely, you know, educate yourself on FISA and educate yourself on sanctions laws, as Elisa said. And, you know, you'll start to kind of, as you understand the different tools at the disposal of the executive branch, it, it'll then put a lot of these stories that are in the headlines into context. And so having an understanding of what FISA is, what FARA is, and what IEPA is, We'll really kind and of you know, firma, round out would your you agree? CIFIUS yeah. stuff, Firma, right? Yeah, absolutely. CIFIUS. Some some of these laws, which are even being used in ways that weren't even contemplated, you know, uh, when it when originally passed, but are now proving quite valuable in terms of uh, again, the, you know, the tools and the tool belt of the national security of this country. Are you saying we took the long term view in this instance, or in the case of national security laws? I think we, we think we're seeing some the value of some of these laws that were passed in the wake of Watergate and that perhaps just in, in using them in ways that we didn't appreciate at the time. But now we're seeing that they're certainly valuable ones. OK, so that was a joke, I guess. Um, anyway, I, I think you just mentioned Watergate. We've done all of this without talking about the January 6 hearings, which we're trying to avoid until they're over. I do think it's important to take a minute to talk about the case of Nixon versus United States, because I think for our new listeners, young listeners, listeners who may not be lawyers or may not be national security lawyers, I think it had an interesting discussion of what executive privilege is, because that term has been tossed around basically ad nauseum. I think it's really important to take just a few minutes and talk about what Nixon versus United States said. And I'll just give you the site right now. It's 418 U.S. 683. Joe, can you give us a few quotes on what privilege really is? Sure. So, I mean, you're right, Elisa. Many of these concepts that weren't seriously challenged are now in the, in the age of Trump and post-Trump are now being challenged. And so we're having to revisit some of these concepts of how broad executive privilege can be stretched and who does it apply to? And can a former president assert executive privilege? And how is it balanced with what the current president is saying about the same subject matter? But when you go back to the Nixon case, you know, what, what the court said was it's not meant to be absolute. It's not the sort of blanket protection of any 
communication between a president and his or her senior staff. You know, you asked for a quote. I'll point to um, what the court wrote in terms of saying, saying neither the, the doctrine of separation of powers nor the need for confidentiality of, of high-level communications can sustain an absolute unqualified presidential privilege of immunity from judicial process. The president's need for candor and objectivity from advisors calls for great deference from the courts. However, when the privilege depends solely on the broad, undifferentiated claim of public interest in the confidentiality of those conversations, uh, a confrontation with other values arises. And absent a need to protect military, diplomatic, or sensitive national security secrets, the court finds it difficult to accept the argument that even the important interest in the confidentiality of presidential communications is significantly diminished by production of such material for inspection by the court. So basically, it's it's, it's not saying it's not it's not an attorney-client type privilege. It's broad, but it's not unlimited. And at some point, it can be stretched, but it'll there's a limit to how, how long it can be stretched. And so, what we're seeing now is some of that push and pull. And in terms of you know, it's, it's interesting in terms of the Steve Bannon case, how, how certain people were recently charged by the department for contempt of Congress, and Steve Bannon tried to in, you know enwrap himself in executive privilege, saying, "Well, President Trump told me basically that his information was privileged, so I don't have to comply with a congressional subpoena," and that was roundly rejected. And he was convicted. So, you know, in, interesting to understand where this, when these concepts came from, and and uh, and how they apply, and the fact that that we keep revisiting them uh, to address changes and current events. Definitely interesting times, Elisa. Sure are, and I'm really glad you came in to talk to me about these interesting times. So, thanks a lot, Joe. Yeah, absolutely, always a pleasure. So a lot of what we've talked about today is consolidated into one resource, which Joe, you probably remember is this is called the U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook. It's something that's actually published by the committee and the ABA. So we will put the link to that in this podcast, but I feel like it's like one-stop shopping. You need to review all this stuff. You can see how this stuff is playing out. I mean, look at what's happening in our world right now, and you can still get it 25% off through August, I think. Um, if you need to find it, you can go to www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity. I would take a look at that. And you know what else? You could take it into a skiff when you can't take your phone. That is big. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for tuning in tonight. I want you to share this episode with a friend, maybe discuss it over coffee or iced coffee this summer. Take some time to read some of these cases. If you're a young lawyer, you might want to read them once, put them down, and then revisit them at a later time in light of current events. It'll help develop your understanding of the law. It'll also help you have better contextualize current events, which are just rapidly unfolding in the national security space. I invite you to subscribe to NSLT. You can also send us comments and feedback through Twitter at ABA NATSEC, or you can email us at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And remember, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will keep you informed and make sure you have context so you better understand these fast-moving developments that are going to bring national security law into action. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast, including me and Joe, we're here in our individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Be well, and we'll see you next time. Hey, listeners. This fall, our committee celebrates its 60th anniversary. Founded in 1962, what is now the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security was first established as a committee on education about communism. 
To commemorate our anniversary, we're launching The Past 10 Years, The Next 10 Years, an anthology of national security law. These articles capture the history, growth, and development of the committee, the nation, and the world's evolution in national security law. The articles will be released as a series through our website and will later be compiled into an ebook that can be downloaded or printed as needed. Check out the link in the description for more. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.